Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who covered the issues that matter most. In front of me was a free sheet of a newspaper called The Metro, and it had a big advert in front of it, and it said, take back control. And that was a big slogan of the Leave campaign for Brexit. But I turned it over, and I noticed on the back it had a little logo of a lion's head, and it said, paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party, Northern Irish Unionist Party, as the name suggests. So I was quite surprised by this. I was like, why is the DUP hundreds of miles away in Belfast spending money in this advert? My guest today is Peter Gagan. Peter is the investigations editor at Open Democracy and Sunday Times best-selling author of Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics. Since 2016, Peter has been a leading voice on the Brexit referendum in the UK. Peter Gagan, how are you? Hello, Shauna. I'm all good and lovely to be on your show. I'm very excited. Well, I think we should, from the get-go, establish that we are good friends. We grew up in the same estate in Longford. For the non-Irish listeners among us, Longford is, uh, well, what we would refer to as a wonderful town in the middle of Ireland, about 40 miles from the border in Northern Ireland. But also we are both journalists from our towns slash troublemakers. But it's it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. To kickstart our conversation, Peter, can you tell us how you started in journalism? Everyone's got such interesting stories about how they got into journalism. And the one thing that kind of struck me is lots of people ended up with quite circuitous routes into journalism. And I'd love to be able to turn, come on to your show and say, look, I went to college and then I did a master's in journalism and I got a job in a local paper and here I am today. But that's not the case either with me. I also had quite a long circuitous route into journalism. I almost feel like my journalistic kind of interest kind of was very much started when I was younger. I was always interested in media. I was always reading the newspaper. The Irish Times was always in my house growing up, which made me very happy when I was older and able to write for the paper. When I was in college, I wrote for college newspapers and all that sort of stuff. But actually, I spent 10 years in university. I was did a PhD. I ended up very luckily kind of been all over the world. I studied in New York, I studied in Ireland. Uh, I ended up in Scotland, where I still live. I went to the University of Edinburgh and did a PhD in social science. And I was kind of almost like a social scientist. I worked as a postdoc. I was a, a PhD in human geography. I was kind of really interested in in the broader sense, I guess, of people in the world. And when I was doing my PhD, I used to always freelance as well. I'd do bits of writing for people, basically to try and earn a bit more money because the PhD stipend is never that great. You know, when I was living in Brooklyn, I I didn't even kind of lived in a mattress on the floor. Um, I was working as a postdoc, as a postdoctoral researcher in Derry in Northern Ireland, this kind of border city of Derry. And my job back in those days was I used to work in what was called a peace wall estate, basically, an estate that abutted a peace line, which is these kind of corrugated iron or other types of structures that divide Protestants from Catholics in flashpoint areas in Northern Ireland. So I was doing this, I was there for about three or four months, and all the time I was in Northern Ireland, I started doing a lot more freelancing from Northern Ireland. As my postdoc was coming to an end, I was having a pint with my boss from a now defunct website called Culture Northern Ireland, which was funded by the Arts Council. And I said to him, look, my my kind of contract's coming up to an end here. I actually did an interview for a job in London, another postdoc, again, in, in sociology, kind of starting a bit of an academic career, but an academic career that I wasn't all that crazy about. I didn't really want to be an academic. I wanted to write for a bigger audience. And so my boss said to me as, as he was getting the pints in, We've, we're, we're stuck for someone here. You know, you've been writing for us. It's quite good. Do you fancy a job? And even though the wages, I have to say, were absolutely terrible. I mean, you know, this is Northern Ireland, 2008. 
bargain basement wages. I didn't have to think that long about it. And I said, yes. And that was my first job in journalism, was basically as an arts journalist in Belfast. Um, and continued freelancing, started writing a lot more about politics. I wrote a lot about Northern Ireland in particular, wrote a book about Northern Ireland. And I kind of felt like that was how I started really becoming a journalist. And I started asking a lot of the same questions in many respects. I've actually been interested in as an academic. I was always interested in understanding social structures, people in the world, how they operated. And in some ways, I kind of took that interest and just shunted into journalism. You've gone on to do amazing stories. You're now at Open Democracy, the investigations editor there. Um, and you've spearheaded a kind of a, a new brand, which is Dark Money. And of course, you've just written a Sunday Times bestseller, um, Democracy for Sale. Um, my next question, which I'm obviously kind of planting the seed, is there a moment in your career or a story rather that you're very, very proud of? And of course, I want you to tell us all about Dark Money. Well, this is such, you know, it's not even a story. It is a moment, to be honest, in my career and actually a moment in my life that in many respects changed, you know, a lot of aspects of how I work and how I live. And it was, I can tell you the exact day. It was the 21st of June, 2016. And some of your listeners might think that kind of date or that time frame sounds kind of familiar. And so that was 48 hours, two days before the Brexit referendum, before the United Kingdom voted on its membership of the European Union and as many will know, subsequently voted to leave. And I was in the town of Sunderland, which is kind of a place of say, about 80,000 people in the northeast of England, former industrial heartland, gone on kind of tough times now, shipyards are closed, all the rest of it. And I was there working for the Irish Times. And I was doing that thing that lots of reporters do before a big kind of electoral event, whether it's a general election or a referendum. You're going to a place you don't really know that well, and you're trying to get a sense of what's going on. You know, that kind of, you parachute into a place for a few, a day, two days if you're lucky. I've got two days in Sunderland, trying to get a sense of what's happening. And you're going to, you know, write it up for the paper, a thousand words the next day. And I was leaving Sunderland that day. I was just kind of getting ready and kind of almost in my head already starting to file my copy mentally. And I was at a train station in Sunderland getting the train. And in front of me was a free sheet of a newspaper called The Metro, which is a kind of, the kind of pretty budgety free newspaper that you'll find in train stations across the United Kingdom. And it had a big advert in front of it, and it said, Take Back Control. It was one of those wraparound adverts, so the whole newspaper was covered in it. And that was a big slogan of the Leave campaign, the Vote Leave campaign for Brexit. But I turned it over, and I noticed on the back it had a little logo of a lion's head, and it said, Paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party. And the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, are Northern Irish Unionist Party, as the name suggests. And they don't normally spend money on adverts in Sunderland. So I was quite surprised by this. I was like, why is the DUP hundreds of miles away in Belfast spending money in this advert? And so I did that thing that I often do, which is I took a picture of it and I tweeted it out and went, oh, that's kind of interesting. And partly as well, I was particularly interested in it because I've worked in Belfast. So I knew something interesting about Northern Irish electoral law. I knew that political donations in Northern Ireland were secret because of the troubles, because we had this history of violence in Northern Ireland. The idea was it could be very risky if people... Um, their names were put out into the public domain to do with giving money to political causes. So I thought, that's interesting. I wonder if someone's given money to DUP to spend it over here. I wonder what that's about, okay? And then I just, the train arrived, and I just kind of bundled the newspaper up and stuck it in my bag and got on the train and took out my laptop and started furiously typing away my copy for the next day's paper. And in the following weeks and months, I became a little bit interested, more interested in that kind of advert. I was like, that's kind of curious. And I had a couple of conversations with people I knew in Northern Ireland, but it didn't really go anywhere. I kind of let it lie. That often happens with stories. You're going to go, that's interesting, but you move on. 
Definitely. It, it just all feels so serendipitous that you were sitting on that train that day. You came across your well-thumbed metro and you were heading to Sunderland. You know, as you say, the I think they were the first people to vote leave, weren't they, in, 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 the, in the referendum. And of course, you had that background in Belfast. So you're so familiar with Northern Irish politics. It, it just all feels like it was meant to be. Well, and in early 2017, I got a message from Adam Ramsey, who's a journalist at Open Democracy. And Adam said to me, I, I hear you're interested in the DUP's Brexit campaigning, because I am too. And he had been in Edinburgh in the run-up to the Brexit vote, and he'd noticed lots of posters and placards that had the same slogan, take back control, vote leave, but the little imprint that said paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party. And we were able to establish that the DUP had spent at least a quarter of a million pounds on their Brexit campaign, which is a huge amount of money for Northern Ireland in a place where they don't even run candidates. That's very strange. So we published this story, being able to say this, that they'd spent this money, and we didn't know where it had come from. And we published this story about two weeks before a snap election in Northern Ireland. And what had happened was the devolved assembly, the local assembly, which is a power-sharing assembly between Republicans and Unionists, had collapsed over what was called the Renewable Heating Incentive Scheme, or Cash for Ash. And basically what had happened was predominantly farmers and DUP um, supporters had been basically essentially been given money to burn wood pellets, unlimited amounts of money, and it was burning a huge hole in the Northern Irish budget. It was a huge scandal, and this assembly collapsed, so they're having this snap election. And into this, we published this story, which was about the DUP and dodgy money. And it forced the DUP to do something which they could easily have avoided doing, which was to actually say something about where this money had come from. And so after about a week of pressure, newspaper, lurid newspaper headlines, was it the Russians that gave the DUP this money? You know, how much did they get? All this sort of stuff. They put, they came out and said, look, we got £435,000 and it came from a group called the Constitutional Research Council, which sounds really grand. Constitutional Research Council, you can imagine a big office in the central London. Actually, it's um, one man, really, who lives in a pebble dash house on the outskirts of Glasgow, the city I'm talking to you from now, a kind of serial failed conservative election candidate. And But what happened was, when the DEP came out and said, we got this money from the Constitutional Research Council, myself and Adam Ramsey, we were really across it. We got straight on and went, who are these guys and what do we know about them? And so we were able to identify the man who ran them, this guy called Richard Cook. We were able to identify that it really wasn't much of an organization at all. But very quickly, we were able to start burrowing into this man, Richard Cook's affairs and his kind of life. And really, it reads a bit like an airport novel. I, I say that, that's the line I use in my book. It's, it's quite incredible, this man's business history. Um, shortly before making this huge donation to the DUP, he had gone into business with the former head of Saudi secret intelligence and a Danish man who'd been involved in gun running in India in the 90s, who, who does deny that. Uh, he'd had a series of companies that were involved in shipping things like illegal waste around the world, had signed $80 million contracts to buy railway sleepers in Ukraine that looked like they, they may or may not have existed, shall we say. And, you know, and again, he denies that there was any wrongdoing was ever done, but a very colourful business path. So we started writing about all of this. And again, this sort of brought this story, gave it a lot more animation and more and more questions started being asked about, well, where had this money come from? And what happened, I started burrowing into this and writing more stories about that. But I also started like, kind of looking around and going, well, 
Who spends money in British politics? How does this work? How do you funnel money into someone like one guy who lives in the outskirts of Glasgow can set up an organization that doesn't really have, it doesn't have a legal structure, doesn't file company accounts, doesn't have a list of members. It doesn't have to say where money comes from. And then it can give money to politics. That seems pretty crazy. So I started what became known as these dark money investigations. So it kind of snowballed from me standing in a train station in Sunderland, mentally writing a new story in my head to basically starting to kind of lift a lot of rocks, really, and going, what's going on here? What's what's happening with this? And I think in some ways, because I had a background as an investigative journalist, I'd, I'd worked for Channel 4's dispatches, I'd done a lot of investigative work. So I, I kind of knew what questions to ask. But actually, I was looking at a world I hadn't really done that much work in. So in some ways, it was quite, I think it was quite a nice mix because I was looking at an issue that I was interested in, but was really an ingenue in many respects. I was able to bring some of my experience of investigations to bear on it, but was asking questions that maybe if someone had been a political reporter for years would have thought were quite basic and gone, well, that doesn't really matter. That's not very interesting. And I think that really helped being able to kind of see what was going on and put it into a context. You're most definitely underselling yourself when you say you're an ingenue. Uh, Nobody should believe that. But what everybody should do is order your book, Democracy for Sale. I think you're now on your fourth print. Your journalism, it, it has been so important and so significant in this time as the Brexit negotiations unfold. Um, but now I want to talk to you about your reporting trip to the US just after you'd covered the Brexit referendum and what comparisons you then drew between the two countries who are obviously both going through or just about to go through some monumental shifts. I'd covered the Brexit referendum in the North of England and Scotland. And I'd followed the politics of it very closely. And then in the run-up to the 2016 American presidential election, myself and another Longford man. Oh, I know who that was. Gavin Sheridan. Many people think he's from Cork, but actually he's from Longford. And we, we sat together in primary school next to each other. And we had the same birthday, would you believe? So myself and Gavin travelled across the States for about a good few weeks, about three, three weeks before the American presidential election. We Basically, I was freelancing at the time. And I said, you know, what, let's, let's go to America. Let's go and I'll report. I reported for pretty much everybody I, I like he was doing a lot of driving I was doing a lot of typing as we went doing a lot of radio and we went all across really the Rust Belt in the Midwest we just drove we didn't have a set itinerary and I think it was a way to do that something like that as well we were just trying to understand what are the conversations like and it was really really fascinating and some of them really struck at me I, I felt like well, A, what I noticed was it became quite apparent to me that Donald Trump was way more popular than everybody in the media thought he was. So that was interesting. But the other thing that was really interesting, I found, was how you could see how narratives that weren't really playing that much in the mainstream media and media itself, but were playing on social media, were really impacting. So, for example, the kind of crooked Hillary sort of stuff, you could see a lot of people repeating stuff that they and you'd ask them, where have you heard this? Which I did quite a lot because I'm always interested in that. They were talking a lot about social media or about fringe websites that you wouldn't know very well. But one conversation really struck me. We were in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is kind of uh, another post-industrial city, kind of a big democratic city. We were in quite a nice middle-class neighborhood on the outskirts of it, myself and Gavin, and we were outside a Whole Foods restaurant, a Whole Foods shop, which, you know, is nice, fancy, you know. Very fancy. Very fancy, yeah. Uh, There was one in Glasgow and it shut down because it couldn't do enough business because we're not fancy (laughs) enough for it, apparently. Um, And so we're outside of Whole Foods. I was chatting to a couple of basically pensioners, guys who were three retired guys, and I was asking them how they're going to vote. 
And I said, well, I definitely couldn't vote for Hillary because she supports abortion at up to three years old. And I said, well, that's, that's, that's called murder. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, I think it's unlikely that's true. And then they started talking about how she supports abortion, you know, at, you know, 40 weeks. And I was like, where do you see this? Like, where are you hearing this information? And they started pulling out, one of them pulled out their cell phone and started showing me, look, this is, this is this story. And it was from like a totally fringe website. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Like stuff's swirling around here that we're not seeing. We're not picking this up. We're not picking it up in things like opinion polls for sure. And what became apparent is I started then a year later doing more investigations into the Brexit referendum and looking back at what had happened was the role of social media then too. When I talk about it in my book, the Leave campaign spent huge amounts of money on social media. And that's where they realized something was happening that the Remain campaigns just didn't know at all. And particularly Facebook, Peter, isn't that correct? Hugely Facebook, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dominic Cummings and the Vote Leave campaign spent about half of the money that they could spend and spent it on Facebook ads. The DUP spent some of their money on Facebook ads. Interestingly, in British electoral law, you're not allowed to what's called uh, coordinate. You're not allowed to work together without declaring it. But just by chance, both Dominic Cummings and the DUP spent money with the exact same tiny little data data analytics firm who were buying social media ads, Facebook ads on their behalf, who were based above an opticians in a shopping centre in the city of Victoria in British Columbia in Canada. Many, 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 many thousands of miles away. What, what a coincidence that is. Who could possibly have thought it? And the same company actually did have links with Cambridge Analytica. And in the book, I do, I do think this is a huge change in how politics is done. And we're seeing this now with the 2020 presidential election in America. It's going to be very interesting to see. But we're already seeing that this is a totally different conversation that's happening online. And does the opportunities to influence politics online are vast. We saw it in Britain during the 2019 general election as well. So I found myself having initially started looking really at money and politics and, and in a quite almost kind of a very specific way who gave us a particular amount of money that was often spent on you know, a big advert. I found myself actually asking much more systemic questions about, well, how do you, how is influence, how is it possible to kind of by influence clandestinely to shape political conversations way before people actually get to the ballot box, way even before, you know, at times even before votes have been called. Because what we saw, say, in Britain during the kind of period where there was a lot of uncertainty about the Brexit process from 2017 to 2019, before Boris Johnson became prime minister, was hundreds of thousands of pounds were been spent anonymously on Facebook ads pushing for kind of a hard Brexit, targeting particular Conservative MPs, encouraging people to write to their MPs. So kind of changing political conversations in ways that you wouldn't even see as happening. It's very, very opaque. And I think that's how, for me, that's been the big, huge change in politics that I was almost surprised. And I was, I think going to America allowed me to see how that was happening before I'd even started reporting on it in Britain. That's so interesting. And I remember after that trip, Peter, you were actually quite depressed. You couldn't believe what you had heard. And and, well, it will be very interesting to see how 2020 plays out. I think now that media and journalists are very aware of, you know, the fake news that's prevalent and and how these systems work in the background. But as you say, it's still a silent kind of enemy in the background, you know, warping its way through the web. So it is really hard to stop and, and find out before it's too late, before, you know, some of these videos have been viewed over a million times. My final question, which I'm always really excited to ask people. Is there a crazy moment that has happened to you while working in our industry that you'd like to delve into and and tell our audience about? Probably the more, maybe something people might think would happen to me in my line of work is is that um, 
as well as doing investigations, I, you know, I'm a journalist. I've written about loads of different things. I've written very occasionally about myself, but I've done a lot of features writing over the years. I've made radio documentaries. And about six years ago, I was commissioned to make a documentary for BBC Radio 4, which involved me going to Mongolia to learn how to wrestle. I've never heard this story. Oh, you should see the photos. They're re- the photos on the BBC website there's are evidence. really... That's good. There's, well, there's worse than evidence. There's quite a number in which it looks like I am naked. Just if anyone does, go and look them up. I am clothed when you can see me wrestling with that guy. Like, it just... My my my, sh- my briefs are kind of obscured. And so I went to live with a bunch of Mongolian wrestlers uh, on um, a... a, a a step basically outside Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia, about 50 kilometers outside. And what had happened was I, I kind of rocked up. I had a man in Mongolia basically, and it wasn't often journalists of fixers, people that we work with, and they can range from, they're often really important, but they can range from people who really are just journalists really. And fixers are really unkind title. And they are the people who go and make stories for you. Sometimes, especially if you're working on a smaller budget, as I was at the time, they can be less professional, shall we say. So I had this kind of 21-year-old student who spoke some English who was helping me. And what had happened was he thought that he had negotiated access to these wrestlers for me, but that actually wasn't really the case. (laughs) And we found out the night before, and we decided we'd go out anyway, but I brought a peace offering. I brought all these jerseys. I brought like 25 extra large jerseys for all of the wrestlers. So I got out to the wrestling camp. And they were all playing playing soccer. So I kind of decided to join in with them because and we were kind of playing football. And but basically once I got there, I met the, the head of the wrestling camp, a guy who was called the Falcon, because that he he'd reached this title in Mongolian wrestling called the Falcon of Sum, which means he got to a certain point in the Nada, the big festival of Mongolian wrestling. These are all very big men. Uh, I am I'm not a very big man. And so he I kind of had a meeting with him and said, look, through my translation, look, I want, I've, I've come here to make this documentary about you and, you know, can I please come and, come and stay in your girl tent? And he said, look, okay, I'll let you come. And I brought, here's my peace offering. And I said, let you come on one condition. You have to live exactly like we do while you're here. So I was there for about two weeks. You have to, you have to eat everything we eat. You have to do everything we do. Shona, these Mongolian wrestlers eat a lot of food. Mongolian food, surprisingly, is really, really bland because the spices have never really reached Mongolia. So you're talking about like 10, literally like the kind of thing you hear bodybuilders eat, like 10 eggs in the morning, like 15 pancakes, lamb, everything with lamb. This kind of weird tea that has lamb in it. Like most Mongolians are able to like skin a lamb. And a lot of evenings they would take a lamb from live lamb to dead lamb to the table as a kind of in a, in a, in, a, in one file sweep, but what I did, what was really interesting about it too, was I was constantly trying to find ways to win their not quite effective like esteem because you have to try and you know you ha- they have to see you and what was really interesting was they were constantly appraising each other. They were very good at because you've got really nice pecs or you've got really nice this. And I do run a lot. I've run a lot for a very long time. So I've got these ridiculously outsized calf muscles. And one of them noticed it. And I thought, and they were kept on staring. at They all started pointing and they kind of all staring at my, my calves. And I thought they were like kind of going, look at this weird fella. He's really skinny and really scrawny and really pasty and white and Irish. And he's got these weird calves. But actually, no, they were appreciating the one bit of me that like they thought <laughs> they could envy. And they nicknamed me Horse on the back of it. <laughs> And then when I left the camp, the Falcon of Soon promised, he said, he made me promise, he said to me, Peter, he held out his hands level and he said, Peter, your brain is up here and he can raise one hand, but your body is down here and he lowered the other and he goes, when I next see you, I want them to be like this. And he brought the two hands level again. 
And I keep on living in slight fear that the Falcon Zoom is going to turn up my house one day and go, Peter, you failed me. Well, Peter Horace Gagan, we should leave it there. Absolute pleasure chatting. Uh, I can't believe we didn't start off with the Mongolian wrestling story that I've never heard before. But thanks so much for your time, Peter. And as I say, everybody should go out and buy Democracy for Sale whenever you can. Uh, Peter, thank you. Thank you very much, Sean. Lovely to be on the show. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson.